With that, let's read today's scripture. Um, Acts 1, 6, 8. So when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? He replied, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Thank you, Mitsu. Oh, you can take that back. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you, Mitsu, so much. All right. Welcome. If you're joining us online for the first time, we're so glad you're here. If you're here in person, thank you for coming. It's a joy to have you guys with us. Uh, my name is James. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, excited to jump into the word for today. And today as we're jumping in, we're, we're in Acts chapter 1. We're in a series of Acts and we're in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And maybe the more astute listeners and observers among you may say, wait, weren't we in Acts 1-8 last week? And uh, wait, maybe the week before that? And didn't we talk about it the week before that too? And uh, it's possible. And at this rate, we're going to be finishing up the book of Acts, I think, in the fall of 2030, probably. Uh, no, we're going we're gonna to pick up the pace here pretty soon. Uh, actually, starting next week. Uh, it's just Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And the beginning of this book really sets the tone for the rest of it. I have about three more sermons I'd like to do out of 1, 8, but I've, I'm going to list a bit wiser heads than mine, and we're going we're gonna to move forward from Acts 1, 8 next week. But we'll keep, keep going back to it because it's really central to the message of this book. So a, a few weeks ago, we opened up this series on Acts in verse 1 as we started the series, in which says, In my first book I told you, Theophilus, that about everything that Jesus began to do and to teach. And we saw that the Gospel of Luke, which is volume 1 of this two-part series of, of Acts 1 and 2, or Luke, Gospel 1, and Acts, volume 2, that in, in, in verse chapter 1, or volume 1, was about what Jesus began to do and teach. And we saw that Acts, basically, then, is what Jesus continues to do and teaches here on earth through the power of his presence of his Holy Spirit in us, the church, or through us, his church. And so, then last week, we looked at the how that Jesus does this. How does he continue his ministry on earth? We saw that is through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus fills us again and again and again and empowers us with that word power, gives us the ability to do what we cannot do on our own, right? He continues to fill us and empowers with the ability to do what we cannot do on our own. In this case, that's to continue his ministry here on earth. And so that was last week. And then Today, what I want to look at is the what and the where, which will include the who. So first, the what of this ministry. What is this continued ministry on earth that Jesus calls his disciples to do? And for that, Acts 1-8 again begins, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. So last week we saw that we are empowered with the ability we can't, to do what we can't do on our own, continuing Jesus' work on earth. But what is that continued ministry? He says that it's right here for us to be his witnesses. Now notice the language here. He says for the disciples they are called to be his witnesses. That witnesses is not a verb. He doesn't say you need to go witness. He says you are to be my witnesses. That is a noun. It's in the English and in the Greek, the original language, that that is what they are called to be. 
They are not just to witness when it's convenient. They are not just to speak when they like it or do this sometimes. This is to be their default position. They are witnesses. That is central to their identity going forward. A few weeks ago, we looked at what that word witness means. In the Greek, the word is martis, and, and, and the definition for that is one who testifies or attests or something or, or affirms something. So this is who the disciples are to be. They are to live their lives, to be testimonies of Jesus in word and in deed, in actions. So this idea of being witnesses includes both being the living presence of God, testifying of his life wherever we go, as well as proclaiming his truth with our mouths. I want to talk just a little bit about this. Because first, the first witness that people will receive from us as his witnesses is usually not our mouths, but it will be from our deeds, of how we live, experiencing the presence of God through us. Love, as the story is told of Henry Stanley back in the 1800s, you may know that name because he was the famous reporter that went on search of David Livingston. Henry was a self-described uh, skeptic and atheist. In fact, he said himself that he was the greatest, or what was the language he used? He said, I was the greatest infidel in all of London at the time, right? Is how he described himself. And he went on this journey to find Dr. Livingston in Central Africa. And find, upon finding Dr. Livingston, who was a very strong Christian at the time, he wrote this about spending, after spending some time with him. He said, his religion, referring to Dr. Livingston, is of the true practical kind, never losing a chance to man itself, manifest itself in a quiet, practical way. Never demonstrative or loud. It is always at work. If not indeed, by shining example. If I had been with him any longer, I would have been compelled to be a Christian, and he never spoke to me about it at all. I love that line. David Livingston was a witness in the purest sense. His life compelled Stanley to the reality of Jesus. And amazingly, things are even written later of Stanley, where he was actually, other people were interested in who Jesus was because of Stanley's life and the way that he was influenced by Dr. Livingston. So what about us today? Are our lives compelling witnesses to the world around us? Are we living in such a way that people are curious and wondering about Jesus simply by the way we live our lives? Are we witnesses for him? I love how Dr. Kent Hughes puts this in his commentary on Acts on this passage. He writes it this way. He says, being a witness demands absolute soul-searching honesty because it's so easy to deceive ourselves. Those of us with a Bible-believing heritage who constantly hear and talk about spiritual things, that would be many of us, can by the sheer weight of discussion come to believe that we live up to what we talk about, even if we do not. Guilty as charged. Being an authentic witness demands an open, tender heart that is always growing in the experience it proclaims. I love that. A tender heart that is always growing in the experience it proclaims. It's so easy for us to assume, oh yeah, that, that's who I am. But, as he says, we so easily deceive ourselves. It requires soul-searching honesty to act. Am I growing in the experience I proclaim? Or where am I not reflecting the life of Christ? Where is it simply a verb and not a noun in my life? There's a story told of George Whitfield, uh, the famous revivalist of the Great Awakening. He was preaching in Scotland back in the 1700s. And uh, it, it was an amazing revival. People would come at 5 a.m. to hear him preach in the morning, and he would go all day. It was a ridiculous revival happening at the time. And on the way to listen to him, there was a man who saw along the road one of the most famous philosophers of all time and skeptics, David Hume, was also on his way to see Whitfield. And this guy looks at David Hume. He was famous in the area, and he said, David, why are you going? You don't even believe in the gospel. 
And the recorded response of David Hume, this avowed atheist and, and philosopher, said, yeah, I don't, but that man definitely does. Right? I, I love that statement of that sense that, that Whitfield was a witness, that someone who even was against it would say, but there's something about that guy that I can't ignore. I can't throw it away, that I'm curious of what he has to say. Why? Because I look at how he lives. I look at what he's doing, and now I actually want to hear what he has to say. In line with what Henry Stanley said, are our lives compelling to those who don't know Jesus? Is our witness drawing people to him? Is it a noun and not just a verb? Or as Dr. Kent said, are we deceiving ourselves? What would our neighbors and family and co-workers who don't currently follow Jesus, would they say that they are curious or compelled by being around us, by watching our lives? Are we actual witnesses? Is it who we are? Is it our default setting? Again, or is it just a verb, an action that we go and do sometimes? But the only way it works is, as we talked about last week, is to be daily be filled by His Spirit. For him to empower us to do what we cannot do on our own. Not just to perform great miracles, not just for spectacles, but even more so to daily be conformed into the image of Christ. To apprentice after Jesus. To increasingly live in love more like him. We are called to be witnesses. But we are also called to proclaim. Because just embodying Christ is not sufficient, as we'll see in Scripture. I love how Leslie Newbegin puts this in this, this incredible book called The Good Shepherd. Leslie Newbegin is one of the most, um, I'd say, one of the most prominent theologians and missionaries in church history. And in this book, incredible book, but he's just finished a chapter writing about, you know, the need for us to be the presence of God, to be witnesses, and to be people to experience Jesus, the presence of God through us. And then he says this right after that. He says, having said this, however, I must say that I do not think the idea of Christian presence can replace evangelism in the life of the church. Jesus was not only himself the good news, but he was also the evangelist. His deeds were interpreted by words. Notice that. His deeds were interpreted by words. He proclaimed good news. It was not that every deed of love had to be interpreted by a sermon, or that every teaching had to be illustrated by an act. Certainly not. But nevertheless, the same Jesus who did the works of love also interpreted those works of love by his announcement of the coming of God's reign. Both deeds and words were essential to his ministry. Neither was a substitute for the other. Here's the kicker right here. The words interpreted the deeds, and the deeds authenticated the words. So it is to be in the life of the church. I love that line. For Jesus, his words interpreted the deeds, and the deeds authenticated the words. He says, so it must be in the life of the church. Do our deeds authenticate our words? Do our words interpret our deeds? Paul states it so clearly in Romans chapter 10. In 10, 13, he says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in Jesus if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about Jesus unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. The gospel must be heard as well as seen. It must be spoken. And here in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus sends the, he sends the disciples and he sends us to be testimonies, living testimonies of Jesus, in deed and in word. Our words should interpret our deeds and our deeds should authenticate our words. Amen?
So now this is not only the calling of elite Christians. As Christians, we don't get to take a spiritual inventory gift test and find out, hey, turns out I'm called to serving. I don't have to do that part, right? Or hospitality is my gifting, not being a witness, right? This isn't, that's not what we get to do. This is a for, for all Christians. If anything, a spiritual inventory gift test is there to tell you how you best do this and flourish in this, but it does not remove that. Central to our calling is to be witnesses for Jesus as a noun, not just a verb. So that's the what. Jesus continues his kingdom through us as his witnesses, testifying in word and deed of the reality of his life and his kingdom, being the presence of God for people who do not know him, as the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit works in and through our lives. So next then, Luke is going to tell us the where, which is also going to include some of the who here. So where are we supposed to be disciples and be witnesses? Luke says this in verse one, chapter 1, verse 8. You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and Samaria, and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. So they are to be witnesses by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the remotest, farthest corners of the earth. So what does that mean for the disciples? Well, they're literally standing in Jerusalem when Jesus says this. So Jesus is telling them, you need to be my witnesses literally where you're standing, right where you are, in Jerusalem, in your hometown. Jesus is saying, among the people that you know the most, amongst those you're most familiar with, on your local corner, for the local shops, for your neighbors, your friends, your family, among the people you're most comfortable with, the same language, same culture, same place, you need to reach out in your home area, in the culture you're most comfortable with, with the food and language that you're familiar with. So be witnesses among your own people. That means walk across the street. Or in some cases, go across the hallway or enter the living room and talk to them or, or to the next cubicle over, the next office down the road. So be witnesses where you are. That's Jerusalem. Next, he says, be witnesses in Judea. So Judea, where is that? That is the, the region that they are part of. So while Jerusalem is the city they're standing in, Judea would be the area that they are from. Like saying, we stand right now in Mill Creek, but we are part of the region of the Seattle metropolitan area, or we're part of, more accurately be part of the, the region of King County or Snohomish County if you go a couple blocks away. So here's a map of, of Judea. And you can see that Judea is the large white area at the bottom between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea. And it's Jerusalem's a little dot in the center there. So it's everything below Samaria there is the region of Judea. So this is the neighboring towns and cities. Again, people they're familiar with, similar culture, similar language, but just beyond their immediate location. So Jesus says, be witnesses where you are here. Be witnesses in the region around you, those who are near. All right. But then Jesus says the next one, he says, now go to Samaria. Samaria is this region right above them. And notice it's the land between Judea and Galilee, where Galilee is where most of the disciples and Jesus are originally from. And so when the problem is that the disciples, this would be the hardest part of this message, they hate the Samaritans. Some of you may have heard this before. And in fact, for them to get home to Galilee, instead of going through, go to the next map, this is the route they would usually take. Is the next picture on there? There we go. They would literally go out of their way, days out of their way, in order to walk around Samaria, in order to avoid it because they hated these people so much. They despised the Samaritans, and the Samaritans hated them. So Jesus is just saying, go to people familiar with these, and go to those you despise, the ones you don't want anything to do with. So why do they hate the Samaritans? So a little bit of history here. So 
750 years before all this happens, there's a nation, there's an empire called the Assyrian Empire, and they come in into a Samaria area, which was northern Israel at that time, and they wipe it out. They either kill or capture the vast majority of the population, and they take whoever's alive as slaves or back to Assyria, and they leave in the area a number of people that are the northern tribes of Israel remaining, and those are the people. What happens to those guys is they then just intermarry people in the areas, lots of Assyrians, other people, and they create the greatest uh, apostasy in Judaism at that time, which is they, they, they pollute their racial purity in that sense. They lose their religion. They lose their racial purity. They intermarry with the people. They begin to follow other religious practices. And they, this is the lost 10 tribes of Israel. They all just get wiped away and they disappear. And they become the enemies of the, of the rest of Israel. One of the reasons is for this is that in strict Judaism at the time, you cannot mix your racial purity because of what it meant to be that they felt the people of God. In fact, even to this day in strict Orthodox Jewish, Jewish families, if you marry someone who is not also of the same Jewish heritage, they hold a funeral for you because you are dead to them. Right? You no longer exist to them because that's a death. It's, 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 it's unconscionable. So the Jews saw these people as, as half-bloods. Right? They were seen as a different race. And it didn't just stop, start, stop there, but not only did they have different temples and different worship practices, their religion became a, a very syncretistic, but they even helped Israel's neighbors attack Israel on multiple occasions rather than helping Israel, their blood brothers, by, by birth. And so they are constantly at each other's throats and they hate each other. And it goes both ways. And yet Jesus is constantly breaking down this barrier, if you watch, read the Gospels. He's constantly taking the disciples through Samaria. He's telling endless stories about Samaritans, making the disciples understand that he has this deep heart of love for the Samaritans. But it is a hatred that is so clear the disciples don't pick up on it. So Luke chapter 9 records this story. Check this out. Verse 51. As the time drew near for, this is towards the end of Jesus' ministry, the time drew near for Jesus to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. So Jesus was up there in, in, in Galilee. He wants to go to Jerusalem. Yet again, he's going through Samaria, and he sends some people in advance to prepare a place for them to stay. Because he's got this whole, it's not just him. He's got a whole I mean, a huge group of people traveling with him at this point, more than just the 12. And says, but the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. If he had been going to Samaria, they would have been fine with it. But because they found out that he's going through Samaria to Jerusalem, they want nothing. They hate those people, and so they won't accept Jesus. They accept Jesus or his people. 54. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, thankfully. Um, you see what's happening here? This is insane. The Samaritans hate the Jews. So much, they reject Jesus because they found out he was going to Jerusalem. But then, in response, the loving disciples, who spent three years with Jesus learning how to live and love like Jesus, being discipled by him day in and day out, who have gone through Samaria multiple times, who have heard Jesus speak of his love for the Samaritans so many times, they ask if they can call fire down from heaven to burn them to a crisp, to commit genocide against all the Samaritans in that area who rejected him to murder them all they aren't joking by the way this is not a euphemism they know this is what elijah did in the past they expect god is going to vindicate them and just drop down fire and just wipe out the whole village why because it's what they wanted 
It's what Jonah prays for as he's sitting outside the city of Nineveh at the end of that story. And this is after Jesus shows them countless times how much he loves the Samaritans. Remember the story of the good Samaritan? Who's the hero? The Samaritan. Remember the story of the woman at the well? Remember the story of Jesus giving the woman table from the, food from the table? I mean, all of this stuff over and over again. We don't just remember those stories. We remember those stories from the Bible. They were there. They were with Jesus. They were at the well. They were at the table. They heard those words from Jesus. And what would they want to see happen to those people? Burnt to a crisp from fire of judgment from heaven. That's how much hatred was in their heart. There's a reason James and John are called the sons of thunder. And Jesus says, these are the people you're supposed to be my witnesses among. The ones you would rather see die painfully, horrifically. And as we're going to see, it's going to take them another 14 years before the disciples even begin to make sense of this and understand it. But what's also amazing is that eventually they do get it. We'll see in the beginning of Acts, they make a lot of mistakes, but they come around by the Spirit. John eventually is going to become the apostle of love and spend the rest of his life amongst Gentiles, amongst people that just a few years before he would have rather seen burst to a, burnt to a crisp. How cool is that? The sons of thunder become the apostles of love. So the obvious question for us today then is, where or, or who is our Samaria today? It might be different for each of us. It might not be such a clear physical divide or racial divide, but who are Samaritans to us? We're not only called to our Jerusalem, to our Mill Creek, but to those we can't stand those that we would avoid at all costs, those we have zero compassion for, those we would want to call down fire upon, even if we won't admit it. Jesus says, those are the people you must be my witnesses to. And this gets real. In fact, I mean, if we're a follower of Jesus and we're unwilling to ask this question, I would honestly say, why bother reading your Bible anymore? It's pointless to keep studying. Just go to Facebook, let that be your Bible, and just keep staying in your echo chambers because the Bible asks tough questions here. And many, many Christians don't want to ask these. We just want to keep stuffing Jesus in our own box as we talked about a few weeks ago. But who is Samaria to us? Think about it. Which groups of people do we want nothing to do with? Which group of people do we get angry with when we see on the news or we see a social media post about them? Just mention the name and you know, something rises in our chest as we consider them. That's our Samaria. Which group of people do we have comfort, are we comfortable mocking? Or maybe we're too righteous for that, but we definitely cheer silently when others mock them. There's our Samaria. For the disciples, it was along clear racial lines. For us, maybe it's something different. Maybe it's those who vote different for us, or maybe it's the politicians of the other party. Maybe it's those with different pronouns, or maybe it's those with different immigration statuses. Maybe it's those we feel are trying to indoctrinate our children in the schools, or, or those who have different sexual or gender identities or ideologies. Maybe it's those with different theologies, different interpretations of scripture, or views on the spirit, or women, or something else. Maybe it's those that we label terrorists or, or fascists, the ones that we see on the media that, with bigger guns or that do other things that are scary to us, or other nations. Maybe it's those with addictions that are different than ours, or maybe it's those from different economic classes. A crazy thing happens with those often today, especially among our younger generation, there tends to be increasingly a, a, a great uh, 
hatred in some ways of, of wealthy people, labeling them as corrupt and, 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 and not paying off tax and other stuff. But on the flip side, we get many others who are looking at the, the, the poor, looking at those who are hurting and seeing them as, as corrupt and not paying off taxes and just a drain on the system and taking handouts, right? We, we always see the other as being the one who is wrong. Maybe it's someone who's far away. But maybe our Samaria isn't even the far away. Maybe it's someone who's right near to us, someone within our own family or someone here at the church. And because we're okay, you know, loving those at a distance, but when they're up close, our Samaria might even be our spouse. It might be a child. It might be a parent. It might be a cousin, a neighbor. It might be someone in this church right now who we have an issue with that we just, we avoid them like the plague and we walk around and make sure to never make eye contact. There's our Samaria. And what does Jesus say? That's who we are to be witnesses among. Amen? So let's do that right now. Just take 30 seconds. Just ask the Holy Spirit. There's still more to come. It's not the end. Someone's like, wow, that was the shortest sermon James ever preached. Um, no, we still got more. Still got the ends of the earth. But um, just stop here. Holy Spirit, just reveal our hearts to us. Lord, are there any groups, any people, any individuals that we want nothing to avoid, nothing to do with, that we avoid, Lord? That we'd rather walk miles in the opposite direction to stay away from them? Jesus, who are Samaritans to us? Just listen to the Holy Spirit for a minute. Jesus, break our hearts for the things that break yours. Where there is pride, where there is hatred, where there is anger for the thems and those peoples, Lord. Break our hearts. May we be witnesses of you. Don't let go of us on this one, Lord. Bring those people near. Bring us to them. Change our hearts, Father, to love them like you do. Turn these sons of thunder into apostles of love. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Linger on that one. Process it this week. That's a big one. But it seems like Jesus should be done at this point. Isn't that enough? Those who are here, those who are nearby, our hated enemies, that should be enough. But he's not done yet. Lastly, Jesus says there to be as witnesses to the remotest parts of the earth. That the whole world would be able to hear about him. Again, this would be as foreign to the disciples as telling them they need to be uh, missionaries to, with interplanetary travel to Mars and Venus. Right? This would, they have no concept of any interest of moving beyond their own territory to the edges of the earth. For Jewish disciples, there was no understanding of the need to reach beyond their own people. None. 
They were the chosen people of God. The nations are, are irrelevant to them. Anything outside of the Jewish race means nothing to them. It's built into their culture, into their system. They have no interest in the ends of the earth. They saw no need to go anywhere beyond their homeland. It's rooted in their theology. But Jesus' heart from the beginning has always been about the nations. Every people, every tribe, every tongue. And when the disciples didn't get this, God rose up a guy that was the greatest rabbi at the time, one of the most famous dudes who was an ardent follower of Judaism, who was uh, murdering Christians and, and hated all Gentiles, named Saul. He renamed him Paul and put him on a path towards reaching it and showing the people the other way. In fact, Paul says this in Romans chapter 15. He says, my ambition has always been to preach the good news where the name of Christ has never been heard, rather than where the church has already been started by somebody else. I have been following the plan spoken of in the scriptures where it says, and then he quotes Isaiah, those who have never been told about him will see, those who have never heard him, they will understand. Paul's recognized that God's heart from the beginning was that all people would come to him, not just the Jews, not just the neighboring Samaritans, but those at the ends of the earth. Paul sees this as God's plan from the beginning. But it was never only about the Jews, but because God so loved the world, if you remember that whole famous passage. Paul understood the gospel must go to those who have never been told about it and who have never heard the name of Jesus. And Jesus is saying to us today that we as his body, we must reach the unreached. The ones here in Jerusalem, the ones near in Judea and Samaria, and the ones to the ends of the earth far away across the world. We must be willing to go to the remote corners of the globe to do it. I've had many people ask me over the years and just say, James, why should I go overseas to reach the unreached there when there's plenty of unreached right here where I am at? And I get that. And it's true, but there's a massive difference between those who don't know Jesus here and those who don't know Jesus in unreached places of the world. Because the ones who are here, there is no one, almost no one in America, very few people who have no access to hearing or learning about Jesus. Either from one of the 400,000 churches in America or the 200 million Christians or endless media in other places. There are avenues by which they can hear about Jesus. And that's true of some other countries, but about a third of the globe of the population has no access to hear about Jesus even if they're interested. No one in their own local language or culture in some way could communicate. That's almost three billion people today who are completely unreached because there's no one there to tell them. And so we are told to go to the furthermost regions. As a missionary of 25 years, this has been, much of my life has been trying to reach the unreached. I never imagined I'd be back here in America. It's a weird thing. It's um, part of it was my pride that we never want to go back to America because I thought it was better to be overseas and do the, the work over there. The Lord has called us back at this time, and um, I'm grateful for that. And part of that is to mobilize, to empower, to encourage us as a body to be obedient to Jesus, to let go of the American dream and to follow his dream instead. Amen? You know, as we talk about empowering, the Spirit empowering us to reach the unreached, especially those we'd rather avoid, I couldn't help but giving my buddy Emmanuel a call this past week. You know, last week when I stood up here, I said, you know, as we're talking about the power to reach the lost, if you want to see the power of the Spirit, you tend to have to go to places where there's the greatest unreached people is where you see it the most. And I said, man, I could ask Emmanuel right now, if there, tell me a story. And he's not going to tell me a story from a month ago or a decade ago or, or years ago. He's going to give me a story from today or last week of the power of God moving. And so I called him and said, hey, can you send me a, a video of, uh, of God moving in power uh, recently of what's going on? Just send me a couple minutes. And uh, and so he, he sent me a video. And 
What I want to say is, for those that are recently come here or watching online don't know the context of this, Emmanuel, I'm proud to say, we have been supporting as a church for, the year, for, for many years. Steve Mitchells began and the mission team over 10 years ago, started supporting this family. Um, in fact, I'm proud to say we are the largest supporters they have in their ministry. But Emmanuel is formerly one of the most... Um, one of, one of the greatest Islamic scholars in the globe today as a Muslim. He was, a long story there, an incredible genius, um, and was in, the, in a mosque in Medina uh, teaching when the Lord had multiple encounters, we encountered God, he gave his life to Jesus. Eventually he fled down to South Africa where I met with him, connected with him, and I spent years mentoring him and teaching him and, and working in South Africa until the roles reversed and, a man, and the student became the teacher. And, and now he lives in one of the most unreached parts of the planet, specifically working amongst the most difficult people to reach on the planet, the most violent terrorist Islamic organization in the globe. And uh, it, there is no one on this planet I respect more than Emmanuel. His life is constantly in danger, constant threats to his life. Anyway, so I asked him to make a video, and I said make it short. Of course, he sent me a 15-minute one. Um, and uh, so we've trimmed it down a bit. But uh, I want to play it for you. If you're watching online, my apologies. We're going to have to silence it for a little bit of it, because he tells a story that can't be shared publicly. Um, but so it'll go, it'll go silent for a second, but let's play that now. Islam and be an, uh, how can I make Islam to 
prayer that the Lord will empower you to and encourage you as you live and in an unreached environment to be his ambassadors. I say thank you so much. It is my prayer that the Lord will bless you all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a blessed rest. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Amen. Amen. Is that not awesome? If you didn't pick up on that, actually, can you mute me online, Cameron? Are we good? We're off. Just incredible. Absolutely amazing. Happening right now. Sorry, online. If you, if you want the full story, you can, you can message us and I can send you, we can send you our message to the office, uh, what is it, and front desk at nview.org, and we can send you a link to the, a private link to the full video. Um, but as Emmanuel said, it's about being obedient, reaching the unreached. It's about being with our neighborhood, and it begins with our friends and our families. But, but living the dream, I love how he said that. Isn't about securing our comfort. Emmanuel has endless offers to be a professor in so many places. So many universities want him on their staff to do stuff. And I mean, Harvard even offered their divinity school, offered him everything they want. I mean, so many places offer him. He's got all the stuff that he wants. Yet, he says, living the dream isn't doing that. It's being obedient to Jesus. Even if it means an early passing for martyrdom. So for some of us, obeying Jesus means walking across the hallway or the street. For some of us, it means talking to a coworker, talking to a loved one. Maybe it means being honest about our witness and recognizing that I'm actually not living a life that's compelling in any way. People couldn't tell the difference between my life and those who don't follow Jesus. No one, none of my coworkers even know there's anything different about me in any way. It means breaking through our prejudices and pride. And going to those who we despise. And we go out of our way to avoid. Even if they're in a pew next to us or in a house down the street. But it also means obeying him means going to taking the gospel to the end of the earth. So we're going to take communion here in a couple minutes. So if you're an usher, you can get the communion ready and, and begin passing it out. Um, but we can be reaching the unreached in, in a number of ways. We can do it by partnering financially. That right as it takes money to do these things. And just to let you know, we talked about this last week in the budget time, but 10% of everything, that, every penny that comes to Northview, we give to missions. And of that, a good chunk goes to those working amongst unreached areas. And so a cool thing is, if you've ever given a penny to Northview and you partner with us in that way, you are partnering in reaching the unreached. You are part of seeing literally thousands of Muslims come to Christ in some of the most unreached places on the planet, as well as all the other things that we are involved in. 
so you can partner financially with us here at Northview, and then we give to that. You can also financial partly, uh, partner financially by supporting people individually, personally supporting missionaries. The reality is Emmanuel and Grace and their ministry, they need more, more partners. They've, the ministry keeps expanding to multiple cities and multiple areas. They need more people to come on board, and they would love to see more people. I'm happy to get you in contact if you want to support financially, or many of the other missionaries we support, other people across the globe. It'd be my desire eventually to see that everyone who calls Northview home is also supporting missions to the unreached as well on a personal basis on top of what they do here at the community. So we could be part of, of giving financially. We can also be part of praying to reach the unreached. This should be part of our prayer. Be praying for their ministry. Be praying for what's going on. We send out our updates that go out in the, in the e-news regularly of prayer requests. And there's mission times. Every month we have a, a missions prayer meeting. We pray for the missionaries that we support here and other ministries. And you can be part of praying for us on a regular basis. And then you can also be part of Reach the Unreached by going. You can go, whether it be short or longer term. Uh, we have a... This, with this, uh, this year we'll be sending a couple teams out to go work with our, missionary, our local missionary partners in rural Mexico. Hopefully next year we'll be sending a team to go work with Emmanuel and Grace. In two weeks, we're sending our youth team to go, to go out and, and work uh, in San Francisco. You'll be part of going as well, and that's significant. You can do gap year programs, so many ways of doing that. But also, on top of just going to a short trip of going, you can also reach the unreached by literally moving to the ends of the earth. I know that's one that scares a lot of people. But God calls us to be obedient. For some of us, I hope for many of us, that might mean moving. And going. Not to where it's comfortable, not to where it's easy, because the unreached aren't in the comfortable, easy places, but actually going. It's my hope, belief, and trusting that we're going to be part of sending out many of our very best that we have here at Northview to the nations in the coming years. And it may be you, something stirring in your heart in that regards. Please come and talk to me. Come and talk to someone of our mission teams. We hope to be sending out many, many from our, of our midst here soon. Um, but this is our calling to be witnesses to Mill Creek, to King and Snohomish County, to those we can't stand and to the unreached. Sometimes it's easy for us to become like the disciples and just get ethnocentric and focus on ourselves. So easy. I remember a while back when I was in Montana, I was watching the news, and the world news came on, on the local news channel there. And it said, world news. And it said, first was report at the border, um, world news, and then it was a report of our troops in Saudi Arabia or something like that. I'm like, okay, with our American military. And then it was reported about some girl in Germany, American person in Germany. And I'm like, you got to love world news. World news is basically where are we, right? That's world news. Where is it about me and about my people? And to me, that was such a, a great, honestly, picture so many times the way we can be about the world is it only matters if it impacts us. That's how the disciples were. And that's often the way we are. But God is asking us to lift our gaze beyond ourselves. To God, what are you doing? Where are you working? And how can I be part of that calling here, near, and far? Amen? So to recap, we have three main applications for today I would ask you to walk away and consider. First, are we living as witnesses? Are we doing it as a noun and not just a verb? Are our lives testifying to those we don't, who don't know him? Are our lives compelling? And be honest. Second, who are the Samaritans to us? Who do we avoid? Who do we see as our enemy? Who do we have no compassion for? Who is God calling us to be a witness among and third, what is my role in reaching the unreached? Is it giving? Is it praying? Is it going? What is the Lord telling us today? Amen? All right. We have the privilege today of, of taking communion. And it's central to Jesus' message right at the end before he gave his life on the night he was betrayed. 
served his disciples a meal, and he said, took the bread, the bread and he broke, and he said, this body represents my body that's broken for you. But I lay down my life for you. And he says, take this bread, and every time you do, remember what I have done for you. Let's take the bread. Then Jesus took the cup of wine and said, this wine, this is my blood that is shed for you. He says, when you gather, drink it. And remember my blood that was shed for you. That my life is given so that you can receive life in me. Let's take the cup. Jesus, you have given your life for us. And now you ask for us to give it to you. To be your witnesses. In Revelation chapter 1, you describe yourself as the faithful witness. You did it first. You showed us the way of selflessness, of, of loving others pouring into those around us, and now you call for us to love others the way that you have loved us, sacrificially. That means it's not easy most of the time. Empower us by your Spirit. Fill us to be your witnesses, Lord. Impress upon our hearts, even now as we sing this final song, as we finish up this morning and this week, Holy Spirit, lead us. Oh, give us a vision of those people that we are to be meeting with be connecting with show us those areas of our lives that are not in alignment with you jesus where we are not living a compelling life that points people to you where we are not jesus with skin on and lord may you continue to put our hearts our thoughts our minds our money towards seeing your gospel go to the outermost parts of the earth thank you jesus we get to be your disciples